You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, a weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is Episode 7. Hi there, folks, and welcome back to another installment of The Raven and the Writing Desk. Chris Lester here, ready to bring you another piece of fiction fresh off the word processor. And now, the weekly writing report. This week I finished writing Flying Free, my story of retired superheroes in the Elysian Springs world setting. The story finished up at just over 9,600 words, so I'll be splitting it up and running it on the show over the course of three weeks. This is your first look at the world of Elysian Springs, and I'm excited to be partnering with Lauren Scribe Harris to bring you this sneak peek. The story will only be available on this podcast for a limited time, so if you're listening to this episode months or years after it aired, you'll have to go and get a copy of the audiobook to listen to the story. As of Friday night, when I'm writing this script, I've written 4,472 words this week, over the course of seven hours, for an average writing speed of 639 words per hour. I still had to do some historical research this week to get the details right for Flying Free, but it went faster than in the previous week, so I made an improvement over last week's 579 words per hour. On the magic spreadsheet, I've now gone 25 days without breaking my chain. I'm up to ninth place in the live leaderboard rankings for total words this month, and 13th place in average words per day. Most importantly, though, I've completed two big stories already, one of them completely from scratch, and it only took 10 days for me to write Flying Free from start to finish. If I can keep up this pace, imagine what I'll have accomplished in a year. Needless to say, I'm excited. Now then, you've all been waiting for this, so let's get to the story. Today I'm going to bring you the final part of To Walk in Shadow. This part contains some disturbing imagery, so if you're listening in the car with little ones, it might be best to wait for another time. To Walk in Shadow Part 4 The Promise Jessup tried to scream. He tried to get up, to run to Tara's side, as she fell within Ball's magic circle, the lifeblood gushing out of her. He tried to do anything, but the sudden release of his divine magic reserves had left him paralyzed. He could only lay there and watch as Terra's sacrifice took effect. As Terra's blood seeped into the stones, the sigils of the magic circle flared into brilliant blue light. A pillar of swirling light and darkness rose into the sky, curving in a long arc westward or the direction that Jessup thought of as westward, back toward the wall and Castle Dauntless. A distant boom shook the ground where Jessup lay, and then the boom became a rumble, growing stronger and closer with every second. Something pushed at the earth beneath him, jolting him with the impact. Then the wave continued on, and Jessup saw it. Hundreds of small black stones erupting from the ground, locking together to form one of Ball's roads. The road grew forward until it reached the place where Terra had died. There, a column of black stone thrust skyward, and the road became a winding staircase of black iron, spiraling around the column and into the gray nothingness high overhead. Terra's body was carried aloft with it. 
Baal came over to Jessup and Siong, wiping the blood from his dagger with a handkerchief. The time has come to cross back to the penumbra, Lightbringer. Can you move? Jessup tried, but his strength was gone, and now darkness was beginning to creep in from the edges of his vision. It was only then that he realized he was not breathing. Siong, attend to him, Baal said quietly. We must not tarry here. Yes, master. Siong pinched Jessup's nose between her fingers, placed her mouth over his, and forced air into his lungs. She did it three, four, five times before Jessup's own diaphragm seemed to get the idea and started to work again. Jessup coughed weakly, and then he could breathe, though every breath was agony. Good, Ball said. Now, agent, we shall depart. He picked up Jessup and slung him over his shoulders in a fireman's carry. He and Siong ascended the staircase at a swift and steady pace. Jessup must have blacked out at some point during the ascent, because the next thing he knew, he was lying in the middle of a small city plaza. Everything still had that black-and-white, photo-negative effect, so he knew he was in the penumbra and not in the real world, but it was still a welcome change from deep shadow. Jessup slowly sat up, every muscle aching, and looked around. The plaza was about four meters square and covered in close-fitted paving stones. Siong sat on the edge of a tall fountain in the middle of the plaza, her eyes distant and watchful. Around them rose small buildings, two or three stories high, with stucco walls which looked black in the penumbra and sloping tiled roofs. The mountains rose behind the buildings on two sides, while in the opposite directions the streets sloped away downhill. Lastly, as if his mind had refused to see it until it could no longer be avoided, Jessup looked down at the body of Terra, laid out on the cold stones between him and Siang. The knife had made only a single wound directly across the carotid arteries. The front of her shirt was stained in blood, but the edges of the cut were clean and straight, surgically precise. She must have lost consciousness within seconds. With a blade that sharp, she may not have even had time to feel any pain. None of that made it all right. Jessup bowed his head over her and sobbed. He knelt there for a long time, until the tears stopped flowing and he became aware of Siong once more. The shadow mage had not moved from her seat on the fountain. Where is he? Jessup asked. His voice came out calmer and quieter than he would have expected. Scouting for an opening back to the mortal world, Siong said. One that you and the Majestrix's convoys will be able to use. Jessup looked at Tara's face. She looked peaceful. If I ask you something about our mission, will you tell me the truth? If I can. Did Baal kill her because of me? Because I cared about her? Siong cocked her head to one side, her brow furrowed in thought. Perhaps, she admitted. But I think it more likely that he gave you the opportunity to care for her, because he intended to kill her. Jessup squeezed his eyes shut, fighting back another sob. Why her? Why did she have to die? Because she was willing, Siong said softly. She knew the threat posed by our enemy. She was not a warrior, or a spy, or a mage. She was an ordinary woman who wanted to help the world. The master offered her away. 
She knew she was going to be a sacrifice. From the moment she signed the contract, the master promised her that her life would not be used wastefully, but at the right time, in the right place, she would be called on to lay it down. If she was not ready, she could refuse, could wait for another moment. For this magic, the sacrifice is worthless if it is unwilling. Joseph reached down and took Tara's hand. It was limp, but still warm. She was a soldier, too, as much as those men who died on the mountain. Yes, Xiang said, and now you understand what your Majestrix asked for. Now you understand the price we pay. Jessup blinked back tears. Yeah, I do. They sat there in silence, waiting for Ball. Jessup thought about Tara, about the choice she had made, and about the promise he had made to her. Do you know how I can find Tara's family? he asked, after a while. She said her sister lived in Metamore. Yes, Xiong said. Tara's contract includes a wear guild to be paid to the family in the event of her death. I will give you the address when we return to the city. Jessup nodded. Thanks. He paused, then frowned. Do you hear that? Siang lifted her head, the tips of her pointed ears twitching slightly. That sound like a scraping against stone. That's the one. Jessup struggled to his feet. His strength was slowly coming back, but he was still exhausted. Something's coming this way. Is there any way you can hide us? Siang looked around at the plaza. Jessup could almost see the wheels turning in her mind. Come, she said, and stepped into the fountain's lower basin. She faced him, bent her knees, and held her hands like a stirrup, then gestured with her chin over her shoulder toward the elevated bowl at the fountain's center. It was about two meters high and a meter wide, easily big enough for two people. You go up first, then pull me up behind you. Jessup may not have been the strongest agent in the Lothanasi, and his strength may have been nowhere near its peak, but he was no slouch in physical training. He took a running start, jumped up onto the lip of the lower fountain, stepped into Siang's hands, and let her vault him over her head and up to the top of the upper fountain. He landed in a crouch, steadied himself, then turned around and helped pull Siang up behind him. There was no water in the fountain. It was as dry and barren as everything else in shadow, and the bowl was deep enough to mostly hide them from view. Xiang took out her dagger and wove an arcane veil around them, a classic illusionist spell. From the inside, it looked like a gray, gauzy screen hanging in a domed shape around them. This fountain rests over the mana nexus in the real world, Xiang said. The effects of the Newman are strong there. It should discourage the creatures of shadow, even from the other side. Less than a minute later, the shadow spawn came into view. They looked like tall, thin men, naked and gray and emaciated. They moved with a hunched, stilted, slow-motion gait, like a long-legged spider picking its way over uncertain ground. The sickle-shaped claws on their hands dragged over the ground as they swept them this way and that, making the scraping noise that Jessup had heard. Their heads were blank and featureless, even more empty than the forlorns. They had only a wide, circular mouth in the center of where their face should be. The darkness inside that mouth was an endless void. What are they? 
Jessup whispered. Siong flashed him a quick look. The bereft, she whispered back. They are made when mortals die alone, with no one left to mourn them, no friend or family to honor their name. Jessup thought. So, loneliness, he said. That's the need. How do they try to fill it? Siong grimaced. By swallowing you, she said. Jessup looked in alarm down at the plaza. Tara. He started to rise, not even sure what he intended to do. No. Siang gripped his arm, then pulled him back down with incredible strength. They cannot harm her. They seek only the living. Jessup swallowed, nodded, and looked out over the lip of the fountain. The bereft were starting to congregate in the plaza, bending and rubbing their hands against the stone. It looked strangely like a crowd of men searching for a contact lens. None of them headed directly for the fountain, but they seemed to be drawn toward it, little by little. Perhaps they could sense Jessup and Siong's life force. None of them tried to climb into the fountain, though. Those closest to it grew more hesitant, reaching out and then drawing back as if stung. There were only a handful of them at first, but as Jessup watched, more emerged from the lower levels of the city. Within a minute or so, there were dozens. Within five minutes, hundreds. After ten minutes, they had filled the plaza, and the streets as far as Jessup could see were choked with their swaying, stilted forms. Their presence said more about the plague than Jessup had ever wanted to know. What do we do now? he asked. The master will come for us, Siong said confidently. We must be patient. Out at the edges of the plaza, some of the bereft began to climb the sides of the buildings. They scaled up the walls like spiders, clambering onto rooftops and balconies, where they reached out toward the top of the fountain. It was much too far for them to reach, but they seemed to sense that Siong and Jessup were close, because they grew more agitated, fidgeting back and forth and snapping their claws together. Then one of the shadow spawn leapt off the roof. Jessup had only a second to register surprise at the creature's strength, and then it was right in front of him, swiping claws through the air half a meter in front of his face. It fell short, landed in the fountain's lower basin, and quickly scrambled out again, its gray hide blackened and smoking. A few seconds later, another bereft leapt at them. This one came closer, its claws missing the edge by centimeters. Uh, Siong? Jessup heard the rising panic in his own voice. I'm still out of power. Siong stood up and flourished her dagger, ending the veil spell. Get behind me, and get out your pistol. Jessup did so and checked his ammo supply. He'd used a lot of it in the battle at the mountaintop, but he still had a couple of magazines left. Make every shot count, Lightbringer, Siong said. Then she added, under her breath, Master, we need you. Three more bereft landed short, and one sailed overhead, before the first shadow spawn landed successfully on top of the fountain. Siong bound its arms with a ribbon of summoned shadow stuff, then delivered a kick that sent it toppling over the edge. Meanwhile, a second bereft had grabbed hold of the fountain's lip and was clawing its way up behind her. Jessup took careful aim and shot it in the head. The enchanted bullet worked as well as he could have hoped, and the creature fell limply into the basin. Its body sent up a horrible stench as it smoked and burned on the Newman-tainted ground. But the bereft were now inspired by their braver cousins. 
They swarmed to the rooftops like a crawling carpet of gray. Where Jessup and Siang had first faced one or two bereft at a time, the shadow spawn now rained down around them by the dozens. Some fell to Siang's spells or Jessup's bullets, but he was burning through ammo fast, and some of the bereft were starting to climb their way back up the stem of the fountain, heedless of their own burning flesh. Master, please, Siang called. Her voice trembled, and Jessup could hear the growing desperation. He felt it himself. Jessup squeezed the trigger on his last round, and the slide locked back, exposing the empty chamber. He spun and pistol-whipped another bereft that was climbing over the edge. Siang, I'm out! As the bereft swarmed in close around them, Siang stretched her arms skyward and screamed, Father, save us! A burst of cerulean light erupted around Siang with the force of a concussion grenade. It knocked Jessup over face first and sent the bereft flying in all directions. Overhead, a swirling cloud of darkness gathered in seconds, seemingly out of nowhere. It stretched a hundred meters across at least, and the eye of the storm centered over Siang. Blue lightning tore through the cloud, the deafening thunder shaking the ground with its proximity. The bereft shrank back, visibly shaking. A voice came from the cloud, dark and seething with anger. You miserable, contemptible worms! You dare to touch my daughter? Jessup looked in alarm at Siang, who still stood with her arms outstretched, a beatific expression on her upturned face. His daughter? I am the Lord of Shadow! Ball bellowed, the voice in the cloud coming louder than the thunder. Before me every knee shall bow! As one, the hordes of bereft fell to their knees, covering their heads with their hands. A low, haunting moan rose up among them, thousands of voices wailing in terror before the dark prince. Those who dared to assault my daughter stand and receive my judgment, Baal commanded. Slowly, several dozen of the bereft rose on trembling legs. The wind rose around them in a howl, whipping Xiang's hair wildly back and forth. Then the standing shadowspawn were swept up into the sky. The black cloud reached out and enveloped each of them, like an amoeba swallowing a meal, and each time there came a flash of lightning within the cloud as the creature was devoured. Now, Baal said to the survivors, be gone from this place, or you shall share their fate. The bereft turned and fled in all directions, swarming up the mountain cliffs and down the slopes to the lower reaches of the town. Within seconds, there were none within a hundred meters of the plaza. The cloud closed in directly overhead, and then extended in a swirling column down to the plaza. Quickly it contracted into the shape of a man, and then Baal stood before them, still impeccably dressed in his glittering suit, spotless down to his polished shoes. Siang leapt from the fountain and ran to him, throwing her arms around his neck in joy and relief. To Jessup's surprise, Ball wrapped his own arms around her and held her close. "'It's all right, my dear,' he said, his voice low and tender. "'It's all right.' "'I knew you wouldn't leave us,' she said, pressing her face against his chest. "'I knew it.' But of course, child, Baal said, his voice faintly admonishing. I do have a contract to uphold, after all. Siang laughed and squeezed him tightly. Of course, 
she said. Jessup climbed down from the fountain, averting his eyes from any more of this unsettling family reunion. He knelt by Tara's body, examining it closely. The bereft had mussed her hair and wrinkled her clothes as they swarmed over her, but otherwise she had been untouched, just as Siong had said. But that didn't change what Ball had done to her. Ball and Siong came over to face Jessup across Tara's body. Jessup glared at the devil, looking him straight in his gleaming blue eyes. Thank you for saving us, he said, his voice hard. But I won't forget what happened to Tara. Nor should you, Ball said soberly. I keep my promises, Lightbringer. But I am not nice. I am not good. I am necessary. And until the end of time, I will do what is necessary, without hesitation and without apology. He looked down at Terra, and his voice softened. And so will those who serve me. Jessup bowed his head. Tell me you found us a way out of here. Indeed I did, Baal said. He gestured at the body. Bring her and follow me. Jessup knelt and lifted Tara's body. Beneath the blood, he could still smell the scent of her, and it reminded him of when he had held her close in bed, a few hours and a lifetime ago. Blinking back sudden tears, he rose and followed the Prince of Shadow. On the mountainside overlooking the town, Baal led them into a cave, a narrow, jagged gash in the gray rocks. The footing inside was treacherous. In the photonegative world of the penumbra, the cave was actually a lighter gray than the plaza outside, but it was still hard to discern the shapes of things, and Jessup found himself tripping or stumbling with every other step. He normally would have summoned a light to guide them, but he would not be able to use any more proxy magic until he had visited Kaya's citadel. Siong took pity on him and placed a hand on his shoulder, guiding him along behind a ball. The cave came to an end some twenty meters inside, where a patch of gauzy light hung in the midst of a dark stone wall. Ball turned, his blue eyes glowing like pilot lights in the gray haze, and placed his hand on Jessup's shoulder. Jessup wanted to recoil from his touch, but he wanted more to be out of shadow for once and all. Together they stepped through to the other side. The air that hit Jessup's lungs was shockingly damp and thick with smells, decaying vegetation and the peculiar stench of bat guano. At first they seemed to be in complete darkness, but after a few seconds Jessup's eyes adjusted and he could make out a dim light from about twenty meters ahead. They made their way forward carefully, their feet squishing through bat droppings and other things Jessup couldn't see. Soon they emerged from the cave. The town looked backwards to Jessup, who until now had only seen its reflection in the penumbra, but there below he could see the plaza with the fountain, the streets around it, and, thank all the gods, there were people there. Astari moved in small groups here and there, many of them carrying large cans of water to and from the fountain. Jessup realized then that the fountain must be connected to a natural spring and was not there simply for decoration. It was clear that this was not business as usual for the town. There were no strolling shoppers, no idle conversations between friends. Everyone moved with a sense of urgency and purpose. But they moved. Here, at least, 
Some of the Astari still lived. We did it, Jessup murmured. We made it through. He looked back at Ball as a horrifying thought struck him. Please tell me we don't have to go back the way we came. Ball smiled indulgently. Not to worry, young agent. I sent my ship on ahead of us. It is waiting a few kilometers east of here. Jessup sighed in relief. So Majora couldn't see it? No, its stealth technology is far beyond their capacity to detect. My ship is too small to carry enough medical supplies to do the Astari any good, but for returning us to Metamore, it will do nicely. Jessup started following Ball down the path from the cave, but before long he had to stop and set Terra down, his muscles overcome with fatigue. Xiong came alongside him and put a hand on his shoulder. Let me carry her a while, Agent, Xiong said gently. You have done enough for her. No, I haven't, Jessup murmured. But he let Xiong take the body from him. No one from Estorini accosted them during their journey, or even seemed to notice their presence as they walked along the mountain paths above the town. Jessup supposed that they had matters of their own to worry about. Certainly it couldn't be unusual to see a group of people carrying a body here. They reached the ship in less than an hour, resting quietly on a broad saddle of land between two mountain peaks. In the growing twilight, Baal found a place where they could pass into the penumbra again. Jessup was wary of stepping back into shadow, but there was no sign of the bereft or any of the other creatures they had encountered. On the shadow side, the ship looked gleaming white, and Jessup could see hatches on its underside. Ball opened one of these at the back of the ship, and led them up a low, sloping deck into a modest cargo bay. Here they passed back into the real world, and Xiong laid Terra down on a narrow cot in one of the far corners of the bay. She laid a hand on Terra's cheek, said something in an eastern language Jessup didn't know, and then left the room, heading forward toward what Jessup presumed was the cockpit. Ball watched Xiang's behavior in silence, his face unreadable. So, Jessup said, Your daughter, huh? Ball stirred, as if noticing Jessup for the first time. Yes, he said, his voice distant. I needed one who could pass for mortal. Most of my children are marked rather obviously. He gestured at his own ink-black skin and pale blue eyes. Xiong's elvish blood helps to counteract the more shocking aspects of my genes, which makes it easier for her to pass unnoticed, exactly as I had intended. He shook his head slightly. But I had not anticipated how much I would come to value our relationship, nor how much it would affect me to see her in pain. He looked at Jessup then, and Jessup saw something new on Ball's face, an ironic, self-aware, weary amusement. Perhaps I have been living with humans too long. Jessup looked over at Tara, her body looking peaceful after her sacrifice. If it hurts to see this, Lord, perhaps you've been with humans just long enough. Ball stared at him long and hard, and for a terrifying moment Jessup was afraid he had spoken too presumptuously. But then the devil's mouth parted in a brilliant smile mischievous and handsome and so very, very dangerous. He turned and walked out the door after his daughter, calling back over his shoulder. Don't count on it, Lightbringer.
And then we came back here, Jessup said. Kaya, Richter, Nocturna, and Mirai sat in silence for a long moment. Each of them seemed to be carefully avoiding the eyes of the others. I tried to warn you, Nocturna said. Her voice was low and rough, barely above a whisper. The raven on her shoulder croaked and bobbed its head, then turned to look at Jessup. Yes, you did, Kaya said. She looked up at Jessup as well, but seemed to look past him. How far past him, and at what, Jessup could not guess. Human sacrifice. If I had known, I never would have asked him. Her voice was full of pain and revulsion. She shook her head. How can I use his roads now? Every step of them built in blood. Jessup cleared his throat. <clears throat> With respect, Majestrix, I don't think that's being fair to Terra. Kaya's gray eyes locked on his. His legs trembled under that gaze, but he held his ground. How do you mean, Agent? Kaya asked. Jessup fidgeted, choosing his words carefully. Terra knew what was at stake, a million Astari lives. She knew what she was being asked to do, and she knew why it mattered. She gave her life because she knew it would make a difference. If we don't hold up our half of the deal... Then she died for nothing. You're asking me to condone black magic, Kaya said, her voice stern. The blackest magic there is. Richter put a hand on the Majestrix's shoulder. Kaya, we made a pact with Ball, he said gently. You knew when we came to him that it meant getting your hands dirty. He looked over at Jessup. Frankly, I'm just glad the woman died like a soldier instead of a victim. That kind of death has valor in it. Tears welled up in Jessup's eyes again. She was very brave, sir. Kaya put her face in her hands, then pushed back the hair out of her face, sighing. What do you think, Mirai? she asked, wearily. Mirai's feline ears flattened back against her head. There's no sense wringing our hands over what's already done. The road is made, the price is paid. Now we get what we paid for. She narrowed her eyes at Jessup. Clyde, dear, I don't think I have to tell you this, but the details of your mission can never be made public. You will carry this secret to your grave. Jessup bowed his head. I understand, your eminence, but there are three people I have to tell part of it, at least. Mariah's tail lashed, and she looked like she was about to give Jessup a lecture he wouldn't enjoy. Kaya stopped her with one small motion of her hand. The Majestrix smiled sadly at Jessup. Of course, Agent Jessup, she said. You made a promise. Jessup stood outside the second-level apartment in his crisp white dress uniform, the twin cross of the Lothanasi clearly visible on his upper arm and the gold pins on his collar. He adjusted the black-and-white cap on his head, and fussed with the strap on the black leather portfolio he carried under one arm. In it were a newspaper, a copy of Tara's will, her contract with Ball, and three letters she had written for a situation like this one. Finally, deciding he had stalled long enough, Jessup reached up and pressed the doorbell. Half a minute later, the door opened. The woman on the other side was a little shorter than Tara, 
with crow's feet at the corners of her eyes and faint lines around her mouth. She smiled politely at Jessup, and he saw with a stab of grief that her eyes were the same rich blue as Tara's. Joyce Douglas? Jessup asked. Yes, the woman said. How can I help you, Lightbringer? Jessup stood up a little straighter. I'm here about your sister, Tara. A flurry of emotions ran over the woman's face in seconds. Surprise, anger, suspicion. So, running with that cult finally caught up with her, did it? What, did she give you my name? Does she think I'm going to vouch for her character or something? Because I told her when she left. Ma'am, please, Jessup cut in, desperately. The tears were coming up again, strangling his voice, making it hard to breathe, and he couldn't bear to hear any more of those ugly words. Please, just... He held up a hand in a stopping gesture. The suspicion on Joyce Douglas's face gave way to a slowly dawning horror. Oh, gods. She's dead, isn't she? Tara's dead. Mutely, Jessup nodded. He shuffled the portfolio from under his arm into his hands. Joyce didn't seem to notice. She turned away from him, leaning back against the doorframe, her hands clutching at her chest. Her face crumpled, and she bowed her head, but she did not sob. Would not, Jessup guessed, not in front of a stranger. She closed her eyes and took slow, deep, steadying breaths. I knew this would happen, she murmured. I knew it would destroy her in the end. She shook her head numbly. How did she die? Some kind of drug overdose? Or was it a... a sex thing? Jessup cleared his throat and reached into the portfolio. Actually, ma'am, it was this. He drew out the newspaper and handed it to her. Joyce opened it up and looked at the story above the fold. Angels of Mercy, the headline read, and below that, Imperial Miracle Convoy Brings Emergency Relief for Esterini Epidemic. I don't understand, Joyce said. The Miracle Convoy, Jessup said. It couldn't have happened without her. I... I was there. He took off his cap with his free hand, held it over his heart. Your sister died a hero, ma'am. Joyce looked down at the newspaper again. In the photograph below the headline, a team of emergency medics were carrying a group of Astari children, their limbs withered and wasted by the plague, into a field hospital unit, bearing the red and white emblem of the International Red Spiral. Half a dozen heavy cargo lifters floated overhead, loaded with thousands of tons of food, water, and medicine. My sister did this? Joyce said. I don't... How? Tears were running down her face now, and she didn't seem to notice. Jessup put his cap back on, then lifted the portfolio again. Maybe I should start at the beginning? he offered. Slowly, Joyce nodded. Then she opened the door and beckoned him inside. And that was our story. I hope you enjoyed it. This episode is already long, so I'm going to hold off on feedback until next time. If you'd like to share your thoughts about this story, or anything else on the podcast, you can send it to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. 
I got my first recorded audio message by email this week, which I'm very excited about, but it was also pointed out to me that I didn't specify what format to send the audio in. MP3 is best, but any compressed format should work just fine. Just don't send WAV or AIFF files, because the file size would just be ridiculous and it probably wouldn't go through. If you prefer good old-fashioned voicemail, call area code 641-715-3900, and then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Twitter as Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S, and my blog is at chrislaster.org. My Facebook author page is at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. Past episodes of the Metamore City podcast can be found at metamorecity.com. That's M-E-T-A-M-O-R city.com. If you'd like to engage in some discussion with me and your fellow fans, check out the Fans of Metamore City group on Facebook or the discussion forums at metamorecity.freeforums.org. We've had some new people showing up already, so come on over and join the conversation. That'll do it for us for this week. Tune in again next time for more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. This podcast and its contents are copyright 2015 by Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.